You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words, What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that your amygdala, this part of your brain that's very, very old, is the culprit about why you vividly remember all your fearful and embarrassing events Your amygdala not only releases adrenaline and cortisol during those fearful events, but it also temporarily triggers your enhanced memory functions in your brain. So basically, scaring the crap out of yourself just about guarantees that you're going to remember it. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's show is also going to talk about brains and guts and a little bit of fear and a few other things like that because we are talking with an author who's published two hit sports books and three novels. He's a former police reporter And you might have read his work on Edmunds.com, but what's really cool is that he's also the most recent author of Wild Cards, a year counting cards with a professional blackjack player, a priest, and a $30,000 bankroll. And our guest name is Philip Reed. Philip, welcome to the show. Good. Good to be with you, Dave. Where the heck do you find a priest and a $30,000 bankroll? Because I got to know. Yeah, well, you know, I've had one of these lives where a lot of interesting and miscellaneous things have come to me. 
And I think if your mind is open to these things, they will come into your lives. But it seems like when I want something or something new to happen, things magically appear. And it's been happening yeah. my, my whole life. Um, it doesn't happen on schedule. <laughs> and it also doesn't happen in the quantities that you would like sometimes. Uh, but 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 it does happen. So I was looking. I was actually writing a novel, uh, and I wanted one of the characters to be a card counter. And I, I, I had never learned to count cards, although I'd always been kind of fascinated with the concept of an individual beating the casino, you know, the David and Goliath scenario. Yeah. And, and a friend of mine that I met through the golf book. Uh, he's a long drive champion. His name is uh, Jacob Bowden. He uh, he's a swing speed trainer, teaching people to swing faster not harder or building their muscles, but faster. Anyways, he was uh, invited to go to Las Vegas and give a golf lesson to a professional blackjack player. So after that, he came to my house and he was so pumped up. He said, you've got to write about a book about this guy. And he brought the MIT blackjack manual, kind of a tattered, you know, yeah. uh, photocopied thing. And it sat there on my desk for three or four weeks because I, I was almost kind of afraid to open it where it might lead me. <laughs> Finally, I didn't have anything to read, and I opened it, and I started reading it, and I thought, you know, I, I could do this. So I called the guy up, and um, his name, his alias is Bill Pallas, and he, uh, almost all of the blackjack players have aliases, and he, uh, and, and we talked, and he wasn't at all what I imagined, you know, I imagined him, he was going to be like some swashbuckling, sort of a flamboyant guy like Rhett Butler or something, you know. Instead, he was a lot more like a, a businessman. You know, and he said, yeah, I can meet you in Las Vegas. He said, I usually travel with a priest from my diocese. You know, we, he plays video poker. I play <laughs> blackjack. Uh, he kicks in some money and we play out of a bankroll. So if you want to come and meet us, you know, let's do it. So I had to check it out. And that's kind of how the thing got rolling. Okay. That is, that's actually kind of an amazing story when you think about it. You just ran into the guy and... It's actually bankrolled by a priest, and where he, is this like collection plate money? Like, how does this work? That the <laughs> um, Lord shall provide, sort of. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, if you have a bigger bankroll, you can play at a higher level, and it makes the whole it makes everything better because you can win faster, you can sustain the downturns better, you can play in the high limits areas. So, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, the the priest uh, doesn't have a lot of expenses, so he makes takes the extra money and, and invests in Bill and then Bill and me. So we were able to play at a much uh, larger bankroll. But I, I mean, Bill, uh, at one point he said to me, you know, he was checking out two deck games in, in the area that he lives. And so he went to the priest and said, uh, you know, I found a good two deck game. And the priest kind of thought it over. You know how priests are very thoughtful. And he said, yeah. okay, I'm in for a grand. He said, right. stop by the, the rector and I'll have the money in an envelope. So, <laughs> so behind the scenes, you know, there's this money changing hands. And, uh, but, uh, I, I am truly amused. Uh, but that, what, what you're doing there, just regardless of where you get the money, is you're talking about performing under pressure. And I think all of your yeah. books have that element about it. I, I, I used to live in Lake Tahoe. Uh, I had a, a place there uh, when I first left Silicon Valley and... Uh, I would go and I would I would count cards at blackjack and I experimented with different uh, mind altering substances and I it was never an amazing card counter but the yeah. difference in what you take home even if you're kind of a crappy one is yes. is just phenomenal and you five dollar hands become fifty dollar hands all of a sudden at the right time and magically good stuff happens and um, the pit boss glares at you and 
Oh yeah, well, <laughs> there's that. Then it turns into a whole different game. Yeah. It becomes a you know uh, evading detection. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people that I talk to, and they like to play blackjack, and they say, oh, I could never learn to count cards. And I say, well. Just look, and when you see a flood of low cards come out, you better raise your bets for the next hand because yeah. the high cards are coming and you've got a better chance of winning, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, card counters become really obsessed with being absolutely perfect and yeah. <laughs> learn, learning all of the index numbers and everything, but it's not a perfect game. You know, there's, the element of luck is still huge. And even when you're perfect, you're only playing at about a 2 to 4% advantage. I found that I would go into a state of flow where when you're really paying attention to the cards, you sort of just look and, and you just absorb the information. And I did find that, that what I ate, and particularly um, modafinil, one of the smart drugs I'm well known, I, I took it almost every day for eight years. Um, I would take an extra dose of it before I'd go count cards. And card counting was, it was effortless on that stuff. Uh, and I, I don't take modafinil on a regular basis anymore. I haven't had it in a very long time. Because when my biology is dialed in, my brain just works like that anyway. But when my brain wasn't dialed in all the way, it gave me so much more effortless focus. And it's that effortlessness that, that matters. If you have to struggle to count all, you know, to look at all the cards on the table at once and run a tally in your head, that struggle takes you out of the flow state. And all of a sudden, you don't remember what you're supposed to do and you miss your bed and you, know, you do something that, that's not going to work. Yeah. Well, there's, there's so much that you really need to pay attention to when you're counting cards. And the cards, uh, you know, are really just the beginning of it because you need to keep the count. You need to watch your bets, but you need to watch the dealer. Then you need to watch the pit boss. You need to find out, are they getting calls from surveillance? You know, so uh, when I first started counting cards, it was like I was looking at the table through a uh, telescope, you know, and all I could see was the cards. And, you know, the, the whole rest of the casino disappeared. But then as I got better and better, my perspective broadened. And I think that this is true probably of all sports. Like you're playing soccer, you know, you need to know who's around you, who to pass to. You know, you need to see how the ball is spinning. I mean, there's so many things that your brain is processing. And the better you can process it, the better you can play. And um, I discovered and began experimenting. I mean, I'm a big coffee drinker, so naturally I was drinking coffee to get to the table, but sometimes you can overdo it with coffee yeah. because you go through, I think, more peaks and valleys with coffee than modafinil. Um, it, it depends on what's in the coffee, too. I, I was tired of the valleys. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I, I, I know, and I wish I had had the bulletproof. That would have been a really interesting test to see whether there was that that, that kind of the, the drop-off. And I would really... because. Counting cards is like a really, really good test of your ability to process information uh, quickly, reliably, and it's also a good test of your short-term memory. We, we found uh, statistically significant improvements on six of seven measures of executive function testing black, mold-free, bulletproof coffee beans against a selection of store-bought beans mm-hmm. in a study that I published in the Bulletproof Diet. And these were university-validated style, uh, uh, like, 15-minute tests, if I remember right, like twice a day. So we were kind of going deep to figure out, all right, what, there's something really going on here. Right. And just better vigilance, right? If you lose that edge for one second, you, know, you might miss a card. But I, I imagine some people listening probably don't know much about card counting. We just kind of know it, it's cheating. And Well, sorry, using fire to stay warm is also cheating against your neighbors <laughs> on fire. So we, we can talk about that later. But um, what, is, what is card counting? Like just kind of if someone walked up and said, I have no idea what you do. Can you walk me through what, it's, what it is and what it's like? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, there is a perception that it's either cheating or illegal. Uh, it isn't illegal, but you can get kicked out because the casinos can uh, read you the trespass act, and then when you go back in, you're hit. You're eighty sixth, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting term that came from the proof of whiskey. Uh, oh. Anyways, yeah. Well, supposedly, if somebody was drinking hundred proof and they were acting out, they'd give them eighty six because it was what they served women in the old west. So people didn't <laughs> want the perception of being eighty sixth. <laughs> So anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, um, it, it's a little bit of a misnomer when you say counting cards. People think, wow, how can you count all those cards or memorize a deck? And you're not doing that. Basically, it's a system which has been, been designed to help you track cards and figure out, are there more high cards or low cards in the deck that you're about to play? So in other words, it's what they call a dependent sequence of events. So you've seen half the deck, and let's say there were a lot of little cards in half the deck, the second half of the deck is going to be hot because the 10 cards and the aces are what's good for the player. Because you can be literally dealt a 20 or a blackjack, whereas the dealer, if the dealer gets a 14, he still has to hit and, and then bust. So high cards are good for the player, low cards are good for the dealer. And once you know that and you know the way that the deck or the composition of the deck which is coming, you can then know when to raise your bets. I mean, it's really pretty simple because it's like telling you when to raise your bets. So you want maximum money when the deck is hot, minimum when, when the deck is cold. And that's, that's it. I mean, it's really pretty simple. That was my understanding. Like, I, I didn't study the science in advanced levels, but you, know, you can read about it on Wikipedia. Sure. There's tutorials. There's, there's games you can, you can play on your iPhone that will show you exactly how to count and you don't have, there's various systems, some are more complex than others, but when you do a relatively right. simple one, it still tilts the odds in your favor. And, and it was, that's right. I, I don't know how many nights I, I played when I lived in Tahoe, I didn't become obsessed with it, but you could go down and you could pretty reliably, at least at the, I, I'm like, I, I go there, I'm willing to lose 200 bucks. Like, and, yeah. and that is entertainment money. So it's okay if you lose, like you would have spent that on a show and dinner anyway. So you go, you spend 200 bucks and Surprisingly often, I'd walk away with $1,000 at the end of the night, which is kind of cool, right? You know, it's so amazing to win money. Um, it's almost like you've created money out of nothing, you know? Yeah. But, but the real kicker is if you use your brain to win money, then you feel smart, you know? <laughs> it's and, good for the ego, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And part of my, the book that I wrote was about wanting to feel smart. Now, I've been reasonably successful as a writer and, you know, other things, but I never really felt smart. And my father had a PhD. He was a chemist and an inventor. He worked for MIT. Um, other people in my family, you know, they, they just were really quick in a way that I didn't feel that I was. So when I turned 59, I was thinking, I would need something to keep my brain sharp and everything. So this opportunity came along and I thought, well, here it is. I, I, I need to prove that I can do it. And I think a lot of what I learned is that so much of that being smart is really preparation, it's you know hard work, it's study, and all of those things. And then when you need it, the ability to perform under pressure. And, and that became a fascinating part of this book, too, because I think really almost anybody could get used to doing anything if they did it enough, and if they gradually ramped it up. Like, I know you've done a lot of public speaking, and so on. I mean... Did you have a learning curve about being in front of the camera and things like that? There's a total learning curve. In fact, people, 
people wouldn't believe it, but I didn't have any idea how to interact in a crowd. I, I had all those signs of, of Asperger's. I, I wasn't formally diagnosed, but I was diagnosed with ADD. And I had all these, these behavioral things. So in my very early 20s, when I first moved to Silicon Valley, every Thursday night, I would hang out at this business networking thing and just like watch what people would do and then try and copy it until, yeah. <laughs> until I could figure out like how you play the game. And the first time I went on stage, I, I knocked him dead, but I was completely panicked. So I was in this complete like flow state. I have no idea what I said, but everyone clapped at the end and like they laughed and it was good. And that was mm-hmm. how I kind of launched it. But I taught for five years, four nights a week to get good at public speaking because I wasn't good at it. Like I put right. in the time. So yeah, the learning curve was actually pretty steep for me, I think. Yeah, well, um, mine came about because I, I wrote a number of uh, novels and maybe 15 years ago, they still did book signings. And so I would go and smoke, uh, speak to small groups, and then I spoke to larger groups and larger and larger. Then when I started working for Edmunds.com, they um, occasionally would put me on, like, national television, you know, and you'd sit there in a dark room, and they'd say, okay, this is live, so, you know, you can't screw up. <laughs> and um, luckily, I had the background where I, I knew that if I opened my mouth, something reasonably coherent would come out. But I never knew what it was going to be, you know. And, and, and that's actually, if you learn to trust yourself, it can be pretty exciting. It's really unnerving. The first time I did that, I was for CNN. And they said, oh, can you be on TV to talk about smart drugs? I said, sure. I, like, I, I believe these can help so many people. I'm happy to do it. And I flew to San Francisco, and I'm expecting like a studio. And you walk in, it's like I'm talking to, to like the Terminator. There's just like a room. There's no one in there. It's like yeah. a red light and a lens. And, yeah. and, it's like, and there's a guy behind the glass. And to be on live TV talking to a wall, I mean, I, I knocked him dead, right? But I did a bunch of like meditative stuff ahead of time because it's very unnerving. So you pulled that off as well. Yeah. Now, it, you know, it sounds like we've taken kind of a similar journey because, you know, almost my adult life, I've been researching ways not to get nervous or <laughs> to be able to handle nervousness. Yeah. And, and people will say, I'm no good at public speaking. And I'll say, well, you, you get nervous, right? Yeah, I get so nervous. I'll say, well, I do too. And, you know, and here's what I did. In the early days when I was still a runner, <clears throat> of course, if you run far enough, then you get sort of that endorphin. Right. Uh, and, and that would really smooth things out because you get in front of a crowd and you just all of a sudden get this like wave of nervousness that almost kind of overcomes you and overwhelms you. And, um, and, and But if you can get past that, then you get to this really exciting place, too. And that's where a lot of people never get to, which is a shame. Because it'd be nice to hear what they had to say. Yeah, it, it's a, a practice thing, and and now like I know that I'm I'm serving the audience and I'm I'm there for them, and, and I love going on stage, and there's there's no fear at all. But it was a multi-year thing uh, where yeah. like you just have to learn. And I'm guessing I never got there with card counting. Like, I was never nervous about it. I'm like I don't do this for a living. Uh, like I have no fear of being kicked out of the casino. If they kick me out, I just don't care, right? Yeah. So. They never did, and and I don't know, maybe it's because I wasn't that good, but I do know that when my bets would go from you know the, the five to fifty or a hundred, or I'd you know bet four things on the table at once, like the real obvious yeah. signs that this guy's counting cards, uh, I would just act a little drunk the next one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and maybe well, they believe me. <laughs> card counters always need a good cover, and you know you're in a casino, you know the the, the drunkenness is is a good cover. Um, yeah, for me, um, well, what happened was. Uh, you know, I started traveling with Bill, and, you know, he's a very high-level player. So first time we went to Las Vegas, I, I barely played at a casino at all, and he said, you know, bring $2,000. And I was like, 
that's a lot of money for me. <laughs> First time I sat down, I played, I lost $700. And it was like somebody slugged me in the stomach, you know. Uh, but what I didn't realize was that that's the price of admission. You know, you're, you're going to take some hits, but you're also going to get some really big wins. I mean, a couple of times I sat down and I won 1500 bucks in five minutes. So, it, you know, you have to understand the process. And it, it took me a while to, I mean, my hands would shake. I could feel my hands sweating. My mouth would get really dry. I mean, all the sound, signs of acute nervousness. And it was the nervousness of being in an intimidating atmosphere and also the threat of, you know, really losing <laughs> large sums of money in a very short amount of time. So how much did you end up making your first year when you started counting cards? Yeah, well, um, Bill and I, and the priest, of course, traveled and we went to Las Vegas, Biloxi, uh, Tunica. Uh, I took a cross-country trip in an old car and I played in every casino I could find. So at the <laughs> cool. end of the day, yeah, it was, it was a great, great trip. And uh, at the end of the year, I had $6,100. So, you know, I think that that's good proof that the system works. You know, because $6,100 after paying for gas? It, well, it was, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another story, but yeah, it was a pro- project that I did for Edmonds, so. Oh, okay, uh, cool. So you yeah. were already cruising around anyway. It, okay, yeah. so it was a road trip and, and you were having a good time and, uh, and yeah. you managed to work this in. So, okay, so $6,000 is, is not shabby at all. And you got to yeah. have fun doing it too, right? I had a lot of fun, you know, and one of the things too is that the risk is part of it. It's exciting. I mean, I'd take take a beating, and then I'd go home, and I'd say, I'm never going to do this again. Two or three days later, it's like, hey, when's the next trip? <laughs> yeah, r- risk is the spice of life, right? Um, every time I see these ridiculous things, you know, safety is job one. Yeah. It, it's like that's a Ford slogan. It's like, actually, no, getting my ass there is job one. Safety <laughs> is not job one, because if safety was job one, we shouldn't be driving now, should we? And I, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm starting to get a little upset with that on... Uh, like the world anti-doping leagues. Well, it's all about safety. I'm like, you allow people to run into each other head on and cause concussions in 96% of them, but they can't use testosterone when they're getting old to stay young. Like, how messed up is that? Well, it's, it, a, it's a credible double standard you yeah. know, on, on so many levels. But some of that is changing, I hope, uh, but it changes very slowly. It's, it's terrible. But yeah, the, the risk was, well, I mean, one of the discoveries, it sort of came by um, talking to the priest you know, and and I said, you know, I think all of these casinos are built by greed. And he said, no, it's not greed. He said, it's risk because it's risk that puts us in the moment. Yeah. He said, you know, and that's why we watch sports. You know, you hear the crack of the bat. And is it going to be a foul ball or is it going to be a grand slam? You know, and for that moment, you're completely suspended. Yeah. And, you know, if you're playing cards, you're not going to be thinking about where did I park the car or, you know. You know, you're, in, you're, you're completely in the moment. And I guess that becomes pretty addictive. You know, that, that's probably part of the compulsiveness of uh, a lot of these things. Because they say like base jumpers and, you know, those high-risk uh, ultra sports people. In fact, I think, did you recommend the book of The Return of Superman? Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah in fact, I, Stephen and I have hung out many times. Uh, he was a keynote at the second annual Bulletproof Conference. Yeah. It, it, I read that after we talked. Uh, and... They, because I've been meditating, you know, and you're always trying to get to that place where you're really in the moment. And the revelation of that book was that when you do these extremely dangerous things, it puts you into the moment. You have no choice, you know. <laughs> I, I have a 26-foot-tall tree where we, we, we needed to take the tree out. So we cut off the top of the tree. It's about this big in diameter. Um, for people who are driving, it, it's about, I don't know, 18 inches, 24 inches in diameter. 
And I put a ladder on the side of it so I can climb up the tree and stand on the top of the tree to meditate, the flagpole meditation. <laughs> Why do they do yeah. that? You do that yeah. because it puts you in, the, like, if you fall down, you'll die. So then you're really in the moment when you're meditating. And it yeah. also makes you put your visual field, like you can't focus on a spot right next to your feet. You have to focus on a spot a mile away. Mm. And when mm. you do that, it expands your, your sense of, of self very dramatically. Uh, I use a safety mm. harness, so it's just going to hurt if I fall. Uh, yeah, but, it, but it's still. the same thing. You, you <laughs> got to have something that's going to make you do it. Yeah, yeah. And I think of myself as being a risk averse person, but I think this book kind of changed that because there's so many people that said, "Oh, that sounds cool. Maybe I'll try it." And then they look into it, and it's like, "There's no way I'm doing what you did." You know, I, I mean, I don't think of myself as a hero or anything. I just had a unique opportunity and kind of wrote it. You know, by uh, because I, I had a lot to learn from Bill. There was an opportunity to kind of try to peer into his head, you know, because I was struggling to learn card counting and all of that. And I wanted to know why is he so good at it? I mean, the perception, of course, the Hollywood perception is, oh, if you're a genius, you can count cards. You it's, know? It doesn't require genius at all. It's, it's like no. adding ones and twos. Like it's really not hard. No, no. But it is it's, hard to pay that much attention, but it's not a, a, an intelligence thing, right? No, no, not at all. I mean, First of all, people say, well, I'm not good at math. Well, the math has been done for you, yeah. you know? I mean, when computers came in, what they did was they would just take every card combination that you could get, and they put it into an IBM computer at the time and played a million hands. And then they said, you know, hitting 16 against a dealer's 10 wins, you know, 53% of the time. So, <laughs> you know, that, that, that was how it was done, yeah. So, you know, do the mathematically correct thing, but... Uh, so you don't have to be using formulas or, you know, but you do need to have good short-term memory and you need to be able to hold the count in your head despite the fact people are talking to you, you know, new people are coming in and out of the table, you know, all, all of the distractions of the, of the casino and, and that's what becomes difficult. I've done a lot of work with software uh, on training working memory. And in most people, you can double working memory in about 20 days. But the training is so uncomfortable because of the sense of failure that's just, just, it's all over you. I mean, I've had billionaires just fail at doing this, like, like clients, where they're like, I'm not doing that, but I'll have like the 22 year old who works for me because I, I can make him do it because like I, I pay yeah. him to do it. <laughs> and, and like, oh, it does right. work, but I'm not going to do it because it, it, it's so stressful. And what you're doing though is, is you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where there's high stakes learning and not high dollar stakes, but for the brain, the money, survival, they're all tied together at the lowest levels. So, so you're basically telling your brain like there's survival, there's big opportunity, there's that, that, that element of risk, which is a huge reason to grow new neurons. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. then you're putting yourself in an environment where ability to pay attention becomes of paramount importance when there's a big threat. And I think that causes more rapid neurogenesis where you actually are gonna grow uh, first new synapses and then myelinate the synapses and then it should become effortless. Right, right. Is that, yeah, well, is that your perspective? I mean, I'm, just, I'm making this up, but, but that's, that, that's my experience of the world. Well, I, I think the brain is a tool that is waiting for you to tell it what you need and, and then it will go in, in that direction. And I think the brain is also a mechanism for survival. So what you were just describing was basically sensing danger and building a system to cope with that danger. And I I think that the brain is really good at that if you let it do it its thing. I think it knows more 
than the conscious mind does. And, and I found that, you know, under pressure, there was a time when I wasn't really performing, and then I got better under pressure. And, and that, that becomes interesting. And I think that the world's top-level athletes know about that. You know, that it's, and they, they need it. You know, first of all, the people resist the pressure, then they come to almost really feed on it. You know, it's like, who wants the ball at the end of the game? You, you know, and yeah. it's the person that thrives on pressure. When you were in, in school, did you wait till the last minute to study or write a paper? I just did that. I turned in a story and it was <laughs> right at the end and my editor said, well, well, you know, that's what I expect from you. I'm, I'm apparently what they call a cliffhanger. I, I don't wait. I don't start on it until I have to. And then I do it right at the last minute. And I have a strong belief, according to a survey I took, that I perform best under pressure. And, and, and it kind of helped to know this. Now, now, the interesting thing was my wife took the, the, the uh, survey. She's complete opposite. You know, starts early, studies hard. All those, all those things never really, you know, worked all that well for me. Uh, you know, anyways, we're, all of our brains are different. I mean, that was what was so much fun about writing this book was it was like, you know, I learn in a very different way, but I think I finally figured that out and, and, and I made it work. Um, you know, and I wish I'd found it out earlier, but that's the way it goes. Yeah, I, everyone's brain is different and finding what works for you is so important. And for you, card counting seemed to work maybe because you're one of those last minute people. What did it do for your brain health? Like, did you see changes in your cognitive abilities when you became good at counting cards? Yeah, well, I started the book when I was uh, 59. Um, I'm 63 now. <clears throat> it was at a time when a lot of my peers were saying things like, oh, my gosh, I forgot that name. I guess I'm getting old, you know, buying into the whole thing. And I think that's one of the things that made me write yeah, the book. Don't buy into that. That's a bunch of crap. Like, like their brains are failing because they need the right nutrition, the right anti-aging therapies. Like, there's no excuse for that at any age. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think you're absolutely right, you know, but there's a kind of a collective aging process, you know, where you look at your peers and, you know, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, we're all, you know, get together and they all complain together. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing, Dave, and I'm sure this is fascinating for you, but you have your d good days when you're really on top of things and everything's right on the tip of your tongue, you know, and then other days where it just doesn't seem to be happening, and, you know, is it what you ate last night? Is it uh, how you slept? You know, it's probably yeah. a combination of a lot of those things. So this was a, a good examination of really optimizing performance in a, in a way that was impossible to escape. It wasn't like giving a speech and saying, oh, that was pretty good afterwards. I mean, you go away from the table and you either won or you're lost, you know. Um, and and that's, pretty, that's a pretty clear division right there. And also having something at stake all of the time. Now, what happened was, um, it was a great opportunity because um, I was 59 and I took a sabbatical for my job and I had four months. So I spent a lot of that time uh, learning card counting, but I was also studying Spanish. And I went down to South America and I, I played blackjack down there. One of the things, too, that was fascinating about this book, I mentioned my father's a PhD, he's a scientist. Uh, I have a son who's a musician, and he's extremely good with languages, you know, so there's that kind of commonality of language and, um, and music, and also, you know, he's very good, very good with, uh, I taught him how to count cards. He doesn't have a bankroll, so, I mean, that's a big, <laughs> a big yeah. stopper right there, but, I mean, he clicked, he, he clicked with it, all, all of those things right away, but 
I kept saying to myself, his brain is so different than mine, he got this from his mother. <laughs> that was kind of the... Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was humbling. But I think that, you know, I, if you learn to work with your brain, then you can... The, the problem is, is that the school system is so rigid in the way that it teaches and rewards. Because yeah. the reward part of it is so big, because the message I got from school was, you know, you didn't do well, you're not going to do well in life. You know, so didn't I, get good grades. It, the school system does weird things for sure. I, I remember way way back in the day, like about 20, 20 or so years ago, I was the only student in the university who had a laptop, and I it was five thousand dollars that I didn't have. I put it on three different credit cards and lugged this you know, twelve pound behemoth to class because I could take notes on it, and my notes were actually legible and, and more coherent, and. One semester, and I wasn't a great student at all, according to my GPA. So one semester, I'm like, I'm, I really need to get done with this college thing, so I'm just going to do two semesters in one. So I doubled my course load, uh, that thing working under pressure, right? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. <laughs> I, I used the laptop, and what I found is if I, if I played Free Cell, like the dumb little solitaire game, yeah, uh, that one that comes with Windows, 19, Windows 95, Windows 3.1, I guess, back then, and if I, I would play that during class... And then I would switch over, take notes, and switch back. That I got a three point nine, the highest GPA I ever got, mm. and it was because my brain never shut down. And of course, everyone in class was really offended. How dare you play? It's disrespectful. <laughs> and I would just look at them and be like, "How dare you look at my screen? It's private." Yeah. Right. And I, I would just do this, and pretty soon the other, the other like really smart guy in the class would sit next to me, and we would collaboratively play. And both of us were like acing everything. Because I think our brains were the kind of brains that were like, is this all? Like, so it just kept the brain busy so that it would keep paying attention. And it was like the information would just flow in. Okay, yeah. that worked for me. But the person next to me probably would have just gone insane if they tried to do that. So school there, was I wasn't supposed to be doing that, but I didn't care. I just did it. And I was yeah. lucky I found it. But for everyone like me, there's probably 20 other cognitive styles that are completely like crushed by the time you get into university if you even can afford to go. That's true. I mean, I think that the only real uh, gift that I had was self-confidence. So there people you would, you know, people would say, you can't be a writer, you know, and I would keep trying anyways. <laughs> and eventually, I mean, that trumped all of the other stuff uh, because I found a way to do the things that I wanted to do. But you're right. I mean, people do get crushed. Um, they listen to their professors and their professor said, like, for example, when I was just about to graduate from college, uh, one professor came to me and he said, you know, you're a pretty good writer. You should maybe make a living doing this stuff. And another professor came to me at the same time and said, writing is terrible. You know, if you really <laughs> want to graduate. So it's like, here's two experts. One's telling me I'm good enough to make a living at it. You know, so I guess I paid attention to the one that liked my writing. But maybe there's something inside all of us that kind of guides us and gives us a, a, a sort of a, a sense of what you're good at. I mean, like, there's the word destiny, which is really a big word, you know, and tied to so many things. But I really wanted to be a writer. I really loved exploring new things. And I think as a journalist, my curiosity became probably one of my, my best tool qualities and tools. So you applied your curiosity to counting cards, but you also hooked up with a mentor, which is one of the more powerful ways to learn something quickly. Yes. What could Bill Palace, your card counting mentor, like what could he do? Like, like what were his mental abilities? Just give yeah. me a picture of that. Yeah. Well, I have three sports books, as you mentioned, and they all have to do with mentors. 
learning something from from a mentor. And well, first of all, I, I have to tell you that I probably wouldn't have stuck with this whole process had it not been for Bill, because he was there when I got the big losses, saying, you know, you made the right plays, but you know the cards weren't there or whatever. And, and he also perceived at times situations that I was not processing correctly and saying, we need to find a way to kind of get through this hurdle. Like, for example, when the cards come out, you shouldn't count them all until they're on the table. So he gave me a way to literally say, look here first, here, here, and then here. And don't do it until they're out there. Because a big part of card counting is since you're counting high and low cards, if you see one high card and one low card, they just cancel each other so they don't change the count. So you can look at a table and just kind of almost like in a second, like Bill says, he just can scan an entire table of cards and knows instantly what the count is. He doesn't even know what he's doing at this time. Because it's automated. That's it. okay. it, it's, it's so, he's been playing for about 15 years. And yeah, and he played also for the MIT team. He played, you know, they would go into uh, a casino with, you know, the teams. They'd give $5,000 to each of the counters and then the big players had $15,000, and they would come down and make $5,000 bets. So you better be accurate with the count if you're putting that kind of money down. Well, one of the guys on my, my team at Wharton, my business school, was a roommate of one of the MIT team guys who that the book was written about, the real famous uh, book about uh, right. you know, weird bringing behavior. Bringing down the house, yeah. Yeah, bringing down the house. And I first heard about card counting actually when I was a kid because uh, my father was uh, a backup player for the Berkeley card counting team back when it was first invented. And this professor who was one of the founders, I don't remember the guy's name, um, actually flew the team out to Monaco and broke the house. Uh, Morocco, Monaco, God, I forget. One of the M countries. or It's Monaco. Monaco, yeah. Uh, And and broke one of the houses. And the final line, and my dad, I just remember the story being told over the dinner table with my dad. The final line was, you know, the one of the, the card counting teams, the professor, had a 20. And there was one card left. And he said, hit. And and the dealer was like, I won't hit that. And and finally, he looked at the dealer and says, give me the F and ace. Uh, and turns it over, and it was it was an ace. And, you know, that, that was the final thing. But, like, that, right. this really happened. And, and it's it's really high stakes and, and just fascinating stuff. And, and I think it's cool that you wrote a book about it because no one thinks about the difference between crossword puzzles and Sudoku and card counting. And, mm. and I'll tell you, what you did for your brain absolutely kicked ass over sitting around and playing crossword all the time. Like, like mm. because it came with some sort of risk. And that is what makes the brain adapt. If, if you're just sitting there, well, the risk is I might run out of, like, I have to sharpen my pencil. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's too milk toast. It doesn't work. Right. It doesn't keep you focused. I mean, it goes back to that thing we were talking about earlier is if you perceive danger, you're going to be really focused and you're going to push into new territories, too. That's the other thing is that you can't artificially invent these things. You almost have to go into a real test to find out what's there, to find out what's in your own mind. You you can't just imagine it or whatever. I mean, it's got to all be there. And um, yeah, there was a lot of that. But the early days of card counting um, are very interesting. It pretty much started on the West Coast. Um, and, and there was a guy named Al Francesca who started some of the first teams. And um, Kenny Houston was like the, the head of the West Coast Stock Exchange. And he was a young guy, really brilliant and everything. And he ran into Al Francesca and 
how Francesca told him about card counting. And all of a sudden, he like, left his wife and kids. He started putting on disguises, wow. traveling all over the world. He became one of the most uh, sort of feared card counters. He organized lots of teams. And then he died at a pretty young age in, in Europe. A lot of people, uh, actually Bill thinks he, he may have been poisoned because wow. he uh, made a lot of enemies. But yeah, I mean, that would be interesting to talk to your dad about that. I, I'm pretty darn sure the guy's name was Al Francesca. Just, just it, that struck a, a chord, but yeah. I'll, I'll ask my dad next time I see him because it's one of those things, like he hasn't talked about it probably in 15 years, but you made me think of it. And it, it's, it's really neat because part of this is about, is about gaming the system and a lot of biohacking is also that way. Like the, the body's set up a certain way to respond to a set of rules in the environment. You're like, oh wait, like when you look at patterns, like you do when you're looking at, at blackjack, you realize that there are patterns that aren't really necessarily obvious. But if you take advantage of those, you can have more control over outcomes than you otherwise would. What appeared to be random wasn't. And it mm-hmm. was something you could influence. And like, that's just fun, at least yeah. the way I'm wired. <laughs> yeah, um, actually I'd, I noticed that the pattern thing is really interesting. Because if you play blackjack long enough, you begin to sort of sense those patterns coming together. And it pleases the brain. The, the brain kind of reacts to it, sort of like, this is a system, I see it working, and the outcome now is no longer random. It, it's huge dopamine that comes from it. I, I remember you just described earlier how you can look at a whole table full of cards and just know the count is three. Because all the the threes and, and, uh, threes and, and kings cancel each other out, and and suddenly you just you just knew, and when you know and it's effortless, you get this feeling of bliss. And then when you realize, oh, the count's really good, like I'm putting it all on the line on the next hand, and yeah. then it works. It, it it's way different than going up and putting it all on black and then winning and walking around being really happy oh, yeah. on real. Like, there's a feeling of control that is so cool. Yeah. Well, actually, one of the first things that uh, Bill said to me is, he said, you know, I'm not a gambler. He said, I'm an investor. Uh, card counters call themselves advantage players because they have mathematical advantage. And it's so weird that here's the casino, everybody's gambling, having a good time, but there's one little group of people that come in and they actually have an advantage against the house. That kind of fascinated me. It was like what you were saying. It was like a hack. It was like, this is a system that exists and you can do it. It takes a long time to learn it, but you can do it and you can win money consistently. Now, Al and his guys had teams where it were like, at least this is as my dad describes it, and I, I'm pretty sure I've read a book or two about this over the years. But, you know, one, one of the, the, the students or members of the team would, would play just to get the count, and then they'd you know, scratch yeah. their nose, and then the college professor guy would pretend like he was just shitty drunk, stumble over to the table, slap down you know, $5,000, get the hit, and then you know, walk away and right. order some more booze just right. to, keep, to keep the suspicion away. And he'd do this table after table, was this the sort of thing? I mean, were you guys tag teaming, or were you working independently, or are you not uh, allowed to say? Well, well no, no. <laughs> uh, well, Bill was what they call a big player, so he okay. was the guy that would come in and, and put down the big bets. Okay, and yeah, so they had a team, and they would train the students to be counters, and then he was the one who would make the big bets. Because uh, to, just to be clear, um, you have to make it look like it's luck. Yeah, like if if you if you suddenly start jumping your bets, you know, you said this earlier, but if you suddenly go from five dollars to fifty dollars or a hundred. You know, pretty soon they 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 know. Oh yeah, they, they were watching me in, in Tahoe. Yeah. I absolutely knew it, but I never won that much money. It was you know thousand, two thousand dollars, and then I would sure. leave because I lived there. Like it, it wasn't like I couldn't do it every night if I wanted to. So yeah, okay. right, right, um, and that's the way that you really need to do it. I mean, no, but so Bill and I we didn't really do that. I mean, we played 
Okay. We pooled our money with with the priest and, and Bill, and then we played out of a larger bankroll. But okay. there there are um, other ways that, like, there are husband and wife teams. I read about a couple that goes to Atlantic City, and the husband sits there and plays and chats and drinks, but his wife stands behind him and squeezes his shoulder, giving him the count. <laughs> so she, so she's completely focused. There are other ways, too. Like, there were two guys, um, they stand on opposite sides of the pit playing, and then when the count gets high, they switch positions and make big bets in the other guys, uh, at the other guy's table. So there's been all sorts of little ways, uh, you know, to game the system and make money. Um, but the problem is you got to keep moving. <laughs> you got to avoid detection because um, facial recognition software is getting better all the time. They're beginning to count cards, you know, up, upstairs. So if they think you're counting, they call surveillance. Surveillance puts the cards into a computer, counts, and if you raise your bets when the, <laughs> the count is high, your history. Yeah, Wired had a good article about this a, a few years ago about the technology to counter the card counters. And if for people listening, if you're into this kind of like systems and how systems evolve, it's a fascinating example where you would never imagine the amount of tech that's deployed to figure out when someone's doing this so that, that they're, they're looking at all sorts of very fine details and sharing information. And what they're doing actually makes uh, like Interpol or the IRS or, or any of the government bodies actually look sort of lame. Yeah. <laughs> like it is yeah. really advanced. Uh, yeah, and that's that's the the constant arms race that we have when we get control of a system. Uh, the system yeah. oftentimes fights back. Absolutely, and you know, Bill says all the time that there, there, the, the, the fear of card counters on the behalf of the casinos is really unjustified because a lot of people try to do it and they can't win. What yeah. they really need to be afraid of is the teams that are really good and come in and can take quite a bit of money. But um, yeah, uh, most people, you know. If you, you know, what we did was always just kind of a hit and run. So yeah. we would, because it takes about 20 minutes for them to be suspicious. It takes a few more minutes for them to um, call sur- surveillance and all of that. So you can make a pretty good uh, living, you know, playing half hour, 20 minute sessions and just going from casino to casino. So like if we go to Las Vegas, we'll, we'll just kind of do a rotation and we text each other after we've played, you know, how much they won, how much they lost or what the conditions are like and all that. So it's it's a it's a whole lot of fun, particularly when the priest is around, you know. So if I was going to go to, he's a big he's a big Shania Twain fan. So nice. We had to go to the show. <laughs> then you have an excuse to go, right? You get you go to the concert and you paid for your tickets and everybody wins, right? Yeah. Right. So, so if I was going to go to Vegas tomorrow to play blackjack, what are five things you could teach me now that would help me win? And obviously, everyone listening, you know, they're all interested yeah. too. Well, first of all, you can write down a couple of things on a cocktail napkin and take it to the table with you. They don't care. You can get, uh, you know, those uh, basic strategy cards. Yeah, they'll and, give you one if you ask the them. Yeah, they'll, they'll give you, you consult. I mean, you can ask the dealer if you should hit or stand, but sometimes they don't even know. You know? So <laughs> yeah. if you were going to Las Vegas, I would say download an app and, and play on your phone because you see people playing solitaire all the time and they're never going to make any money doing that. So why not learn to play Blackjack, because the interesting thing about blackjack is you can get about 80% of the way with about five simple rules. So, you know, get the app, play, you know, if your trip's a week or so away, you'll be in pretty good shape by the time you get there because it's not hard to get almost to even with the casino just using basic strategy. Right. So if you know, per, if you know perfect basic strategy, you're at about a quarter of a percent disadvantage. 
So, you know, that would be one of the first things I'd recommend. And then the, the other rules are, you know, you, you always um, split eight, eights and aces. That, that's one of, one of the really big ones. Then, you know, basically you hit until you get 17 if the dealer has seven or above. Yeah. You know, so, so, so real basic stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm, but, you know, you still see people like, well, what should I do? Hit or stand, you know. But then beyond that, there's a lot of things that you can double and split, which will make you a ton of money. Because basically the way the, way the game is constructed, you'll only win about 47% of the hands. So you're trying to overcome this deficit of about 3%. And you do that by doubling and splitting and raising your bets. And, and once you begin to do that, you can do well. You can play even. You can get some nice wins and a whole bunch of comps if you like going there. I mean, if you like going to Vegas anyways and you like to sit at a, a table and play, uh, why not learn a few simple rules? Another one that we highly recommend is to try to play alone. So play in the mornings because the tables will be empty and the stakes will be lower. So, uh, you know, you don't want to play with a bunch of people. Most people play with a lot of people because they want to, you know, quote unquote, lose slowly because they think they're going to lose. So right. playing head up against a dealer is the good way to go. I'm not what, sure that was five, but that was a few good tips. It was still some good tips. Yeah. Uh, what performance enhancing substances did you find worked best if you were going to do card counting? So number one, coffee. Coffee, good night's sleep, um, meditation. That's not a substance, but meditation was really good to kind of calm you down and increase the speed of processing. About halfway through the book, I got tested for ADD, so I used Adderall. I and Adderall work. speeds up your cognition, so you just do things faster, and, and that's useful. I don't particularly like Adderall. I, I like modafinil better, uh, but I didn't use that. I kind of discovered that late in the process, but I'd love to try some of the bulletproof substances, too. Well, there you've already got them, and there's... Yeah. There's two professional poker players. Actually, come to think of it, there's three professional poker players uh, who use Bulletproof extensively. I don't know any professional blackjack players who use it, uh, but um, Nam is a, a world champion. Nam Lay, a world champion poker player, like World Series of Poker, and just completely changed the way he played. And now when he backs someone, he requires that they use Bulletproof coffee because mm. you just have more energy for, for this, uh, which, yeah. is, which is really kind of funny. And, okay, so, so I know that you're going to like Brain Octane and Bulletproof Coffee. You said modafinil, yeah. you discovered late in the process. Adderall, yes. kind of, but you don't like it. Um, what about food? I, I, I use, the, you know, the normal ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo. And um, ginseng to some degree. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, I'll make sure we send you some choline force, which I talked about at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. Having more acetylcholine for a lot of brains can really help on, on this kind of thing as well. Just mm-hmm. this is one of the stimulatory, like focusing neurotransmitters. That's uh, it's, it's particularly important for this kind of stuff. Uh, what I found too was that depending on your tolerance for things, if I did it now, I would have bulletproof coffee. But back when I was doing a lot of this stuff, I had figured out some aspects of the diet, but not all of them. And in the very early days, one of the things that gets you is you're always like drinking either alcohol or sugar. And you're eating junk food, and they actually ply you with that stuff on purpose because they know oh, that it makes you make yeah. bad decisions. Yes. But if you're there at the table and you're on a winning streak and you're not going to eat like a bulletproof bar, which is what I would do now, <laughs> yeah. um, what, uh, what you can do, though, is you can actually tell them that you want um, an orange Julius with a raw mm. egg in it. 
Mm-hmm. And they'll still do that. And God knows what they actually put in the orange juice. It's probably skim milk powder, a bunch of crap. But in the old days, it was basically raw egg blended with milk and orange juice. Mm-hmm. And it's the closest thing you can get to like something with protein and fat at a casino if you didn't have anything with you and you're not going to leave the table. Okay. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I would not recommend that as a health food. It's not a bulletproof food. It's just better than, oh, let me have two shots of tequila or a martini or something. Like that's right. going to take you out of your game. I'm assuming you didn't drink. Did you drink beer when you did this? or? Well, it helps if you do order a beer. Uh, but do you um, so drink it or just order it? Just order it. Okay. <laughs> so, so that it looks like you're a happy-go-lucky. What Bill would do is get a martini, um, pour it out in the restroom, and refill it with water, but keep the olive. So, you know, it looked like he was drinking, you know, vodka or gin. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good idea because the profile of the card counter, of course, you're drinking Perrier, you know, you're... You're, you're, you're not tipping the dealer, all those things. You, you want to get away from all of that. Okay, so you want to, you want to blend in and look a little drunk. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That, that's, that's super cool. If someone tomorrow said, hey, I want to, uh, I want to learn how to count cards, um, what would you tell them? Like, like, all right, like, like, I, like, I'm a total virgin. What do I do? Yeah, I think um, allow yourself enough time to really do it for okay. real. Don't think you're going to do it overnight. Um, Find a good system and a place you can practice at small stakes. And then I would say, don't be too discouraged by early losses and don't be too encouraged by early wins because both of those you'll find are are a little misleading. And and give yourself time to do it and make sure that you know that your processing speed, when you're in your living room at your kitchen table, they they talk about kitchen table blackjack players, you know, uh, is going to be very different than casino conditions. It's a little bit like shooting free throws alone in a gym and then having the game on the line. So allow time to do that and understand the process. Then beyond that, find a good system. There are probably 25 different card counting systems. Some of them are very simple and some are very challenging. And it will be an interesting journey into your own own brain and how, how you work. I, I love the idea of uh, of counting cards as a way of self discovery, and I my experience was certainly that, and I, I was nowhere near at your level. But th- there's a lot to be learned about your cognitive style and how you perform under yeah. pressure in in this scenario. So it, it, it's great fun, and it's legal, and it's not taken away from anyone except the house if you're lucky, and they deserve it. They do black hearted <laughs> corporations. <laughs> Now, there's one more question for you, and one that's been on every episode of Bulletproof Radio. If someone came to you tomorrow, and instead of asking about counting cards, they just said, look, I'm going to be better at every single thing I do in life. Like, I'm going to be a better human being. What are the three most important pieces of advice you'd offer them? Well, I I think um, understand that you're nowhere near as limited as you think you are. And the second thing is learn how to face your fears. I think I, I got this idea that if you're afraid of something, you should go straight at it. Because if you do, there's something that will go along with you to give you the strength to, to succeed. And then the third thing is to understand that really anything worth doing will take time to, to, to accomplish. So those are the, you know, a few of the things that I've learned in my less than perfect life. Thank you for sharing those. Uh, Philip Reed, author of Wild Cards. Where can people find more about your books? Well, you can get a Kindle version of it. Uh, it's also out in hardcover, and right now it's in uh, it's in Barnes and Noble and an actual bookstore still, which is very exciting. Oh, that makes it easy to pick it up. So the title of the book yeah. is Wild Cards, 
And the full title, I have to scroll up here to remember the whole title because it's really long. A Year Counting Cards with a Professional Blackjack Player, a Priest, and a $30,000 Bankroll. Thanks again for being on Bulletproof Radio. I, I had a great time. Thank you, Dave. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love it if you went out to iTunes and you took just a minute to leave a review. You can also find Bulletproof Radio with full transcripts, interactive transcripts, where you can take just little bits of this and share it with your friends. Uh, and you can find those on bulletproofexec.com. And you can head on over to Podcast One, which is the podcast network that distributes Bulletproof Radio. And there's a bunch of other good stuff there as well. Uh, so I appreciate your support. I appreciate you listening. And have an awesome day. Make it more awesome with Colleen Force. If you like this episode, try that stuff. See what you can do for your brain. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.